welcome to Diversity in Tech podcast, the podcast that brings you expert advice and unique insights on diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. Whether you're a software developer, a designer, a CTO or a people manager, we're here to help make your workplace more accessible, open and equitable. This podcast is brought to you by Dint, diversity and inclusion in tech. Join our global community by visiting us at dintglobal.com. That's D-I-N-T global. Com. I'm Davina and I'm Richard and we're the co-founders of Dint. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, this month we're tackling femtech, an amazing section of the industry that gets talked about I think very little compared to, to other areas. Pleased to welcome our guest, Ali Lyles Jenkins. She is a global expert in digital transformation and product and innovation experience who works currently at a consultancy called Slalom. Welcome also to Rich, my co-host, who, who probably needs no introduction. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi, Rich. Ali, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your background? My name is Ali Lyles Jenkins. Thanks for having me today. Uh, I have been in product in some capacity for the past 12 years as a strategist, as a growth hacker. I was the kid who asked why the sky is blue, why the plants are green, and bugged the kids around me in class, and then uh, grew up to be someone who makes stuff and likes making stuff. And for that reason, um, I'm now principal in product innovation at Slalom, and I love all products, digital, hardware, Play-Doh, tangible, whatever you see, um, just because I always wonder why things come to be, and that's why I'm in the seat I am in today. Amazing, amazing. So I'm going to start with the basic question of what is Femtech. I, when I think of femtech, I think period trackers, and that might have been the case a few years ago. But I reckon by now there's a, there's a lot more out there. So can you just just give us an overview of, of what it now encompasses? It's not uncommon that someone doesn't know what it is because it's fairly new. It was a term that was coined uh, in 2016 by Ida Ten, who is the co-founder of the Clue app, which is a period tracker. But femtech is largely a term that refers to diagnostic tools products, services, wearables, and software that use technology to address women's issues. So it's kind of interesting because when you listen to like different schools of thought, some folks would agree, yes, I am part of the fintech community. And some folks would say, you know, I'm a, I just make medical devices that help and benefit all. So even within the femtech realm, there's some stickiness. And what made you, obviously you have a deep interest in this topic. What, what kind of led you towards this as an area of interest? I honestly got into it because I was part of a startup founded by a woman named Dr. Brittany Barreto. And after the startup sort of fizzled out, she invited me to uh, join Femtech Focus, which is a nonprofit that helps entrepreneurs that are in this realm of Femtech. And so it was one of those things that I was unaware of Femtech at the time, but I just followed a great leader and <laughs> it blew open the doors to this entire realm of possibility. I was astounded that there are things beyond period trackers. It is something that is constantly thrown around as being a niche industry, but it's going to be valuable at you know one trillion dollars in the next couple of years it sparked a great debate amongst the femtech community am i femtech am i not femtech i kind of liked being front and center of discussions where it became very imperative that until women's health is considered everyone's health we can't really move the needle forward and that's why i became part of it that's absolutely fascinating so when we're talking about um, women's health and, and everyone's health is that why femtech's important do you see a lot of biases in in healthcare as it stands 
Oh, yeah. Femtech serves for a calling that has long been the battle cry for, for many, many years. It's not uncommon that when, uh, at least in the United States, when a woman goes to the hospital and claims abdomen pains, that she's ignored in the waiting room because she is a woman and she can childbear and she can totally take on pain. So whatever that is that she's dealing with is not a big deal. And so it, it's it's actually pretty interesting. It wasn't until about six years ago that the U.S. National Institute of Health asked that women be incorporated in preclinical trials. Up until six years ago, at least in the United States, product services were being made um, with consideration that basically a woman is a small man. <laughs> there was no uniqueness to anything. Um, and so that's largely what we're seeing in, in the past uh, six years is people saying, hey, women have uh, clinical conditions that are different from what men are being treated for. Um, so it's time to do something about it. So like menopause, endometriosis, things beyond uh, period trackers are, are what we're seeing these days. You are seeing some traction in the market space because prior to maybe just, you know, six years ago with Ida 10 being on the map as like the queen of femtech or the mother of femtech, you know, a lot of people thought this is a movement that doesn't really have any feed. But, you know, since then, more than 100 femtech companies have IPO'd and been valued at over $300 million. So it, if it's not for the women who are on the receiving end of these products and services, it's definitely for the entrepreneurs that are, are kicking the door open. With a lot of industry change, a lot of technology change, we see that language changes. When we have conversations about periods and menopause and other, other areas that femtech covers, have you seen that conversation change and improve over time? Yes. But it, it's been uh, sort of slow in coming. And I think part of the change that has come with the language itself has come as a result of, of funding. So there's what the public sees, like no longer seeing uh, femtech being associated with period trackers. Now we see wearables as, as something. But I, I think that some of the language that's changing is changing in those boardrooms of VCs. Only 7% of decision makers at VCs are women. And 1% of those decision makers identify as Black and 2% identify as Latinx. Now, the reason why the conversation needed to shift is because dollars needed to be had and dollars needed to be made. One of the challenges that, that FinTech faces is a lack of investment. And with that comes language. Because if you were to go into a room and pitch to a VC a second screen widget that you can take everywhere with you, you need your laptop, you need a second screen at the coffee shop, there you go. Most people understand what that is. But in a lot of VCs were predominantly male. There was a learning curve. You had to explain the healthcare situation of the woman, what is a pad, why period trackers needed, and in that like two-minute elevator pitch that you would get on Shark Tank or something like that, you you lose the audience halfway through. With that became, I think, a, a shift in language, but less focus of description and uh, more focus on the broader implications of the technology. So it's not like, oh, this is going to help me track my period. Is this going to uh, help me track fertility for, <laughs> for the prolonging of the species sort of thing? Um, like, what are the long-term implications of this and how does it affect people around me? The language has changed in part to the narrative. You mentioned a minute ago there's been so many femtech companies now being really successful, um, raising, raising funding, becoming profitable. Can you name a few maybe so that our listeners can go, oh, yeah, do you know what? I've heard of that. Uh, yes, Evofem is one. That is uh, a company that actually does pregnancy prevention. They had a, a commercial during the Super Bowl, which was like 
like kind of crazy <laughs> because you know millions of people all over are watching a game worldwide and uh, seeing femtech come up was kind of interesting in the united states flow health which is a period tracker has been helpful bloom life uh, which is a connected device that helps with uh, pregnancy and the United Kingdom, there's been Nurturey, and it is a mobile app that helps with pregnancy and nursing. And then I believe it's called Curion, and they are software that's in women's cancers subsector. So they're making a lot of traction, Curion and, and Nurturey in, in, the, in the UK. Uh, so these aren't like household names, but mo more often they're not, their funding is tied to large entities that we've heard of, like GlaxoSmithKline. Are we saying that it's still a little bit niche, or do you think we're we're moving on from niche now, particularly because you mentioned GlaxoSmithKline there, and are we moving into into a space where, where these companies are more widely accepted and will find it or are finding it easier to get funding and recognition? It, it is sticky. I mean, I would say that it isn't niche just because there have been a few things lately that have moved the needle. I mean, um, more femtech startups are getting more funding. You know, this is an industry that affects 50% of the population. So I heard someone on another podcast say like, so why is it niche if it affects 50% yeah. of the population? This is something that is changed slow and coming. I see both sides, you know, having been in femtech for the past couple of years, I don't think it's niche. So I have to put on the hat of someone who is removed from it. For those who have not heard of the term femtech, chances are they might have heard of the product. They might have a femtech app on their phone that they didn't even know is, is femtech. One of the most uh, common subjections of uh, female health here is products that have to do with menstruation, maternal health, fertility, sexual wellness. It is very likely that women and men have some sort of femtech app on their phone. I, I would say that that I can see both arguments to it being niche, um, and I'll accept both, at least for now. It's just made me think there, you know, maybe partly it's because we don't talk about these things in society and generally. So, like, would I have a conversation about periods or menstrual cycles in the office? Actually, occasionally I have done, but generally speaking, no. Do we discuss fertility with our colleagues? Generally speaking, no. We tend to discuss with our partners or maybe in our private lives or in a group of women but we certainly don't discuss them in the workplace and I wonder if that has a has a knock on to to the industry as a whole I can totally see where you're coming from with that perspective and um, you're right we don't talk about our periods and, and fertility in the workplace one subset of femtech that has made a, a small dent and kind of stuck its foot in the door and opening those conversations in the workplace has been breastfeeding centers. So in a lot of co-working spaces or some quote unquote progressive companies, they've offered like rooms where w women can breast pump and store their milk so they could take it home to their kids. And that's one of those things that is has been embraced because I think that uh, in large part, it's like, well, how do we get these women to do their work? <laughs> you know, like, how do we get them to get back to their desks so they're not breast pumping in their car? And then there have been a couple of startups that have worked with HR programs to, to get their foot, foot in the door uh, and, and offer services there. So storage services, quiet rooms, like things, just that setup alone is probably the one that's probably had the most impact in the professional uh, sector in, in a long time. And even then, it's not very widespread. We works and, and co-working spaces of that sort, and then companies who remember that there's women there who probably need to breast pump throughout the day. Yeah. It's fascinating you say, because um, 
my partners had two kids and we um we um she best breastfed them both and she works for the um civil service in the uk and there are civil service buildings now that will have that facility and it, you're right it's as soon as you said breastfeeding that's triggered a lot of thoughts that is really kind of something that's changing the way people think about it and it there's a huge drive as well about that kind of the breastfeeding in public in the uk and how how it's preferred now it, it should be done that way now um and it's fascinating. We also, more and more companies are starting to talk about when uh, periods are particularly heavy or people are having a particularly difficult period, that that can be taken as, as leave that's not sick and it's not leave, it is just take that time. These issues are certainly becoming more and more prevalent. I was fascinated by what you said about the boardroom being like a key place if it's all men who men kind of don't really understand. Other than that, what is it you see that the kind of the big challenges for femtech in the next few years are going are gonna to be? And what needs to be overcome? I'll rattle off a couple, but then I'll, I'll jump into one that's near and dear in my heart. So um, insufficient R&D funding. So only 4% of healthcare R&D funding is targeted at women's health. Um, taxation risk. Um, there's a fear of unfair pink tax applied to a pro- products marketed to women, tampons, pads, uh, things of that sort. The pace of education, not enough is being done to debunk myths and break taboos surrounding women's um, health-related issues. And I think the fourth one is near and dear to my heart because I come from a background of, of marketing. I became a, a product person because I came from a marketing background and took a slight pivot there. And one of the things that we see is that there are healthcare companies that do pelvic floor medical devices. So there are companies where you can, if you are having uh, pelvic floor problems, you put on what looks like a pair of running shorts or cycle shorts, and it'll help you do Kegels to strengthen your pelvic floor so you have less bladder control problems. The problem is coming with marketing. There have been multiple companies uh, who are selling you know, pelvic floor products or things uh, to address these matters on Facebook, but they're getting flagged and uh, for being inappropriate content, even though it is a health device. When men sell other health devices in the same vein to do male health things. One of the reasons why I I really like this topic is because it is sticky, Um, much like Twitter and Facebook and um, a lot of other social media companies, that private company has the right to not show those ads. However, it just makes it that much more difficult for these companies to get the word out that their products exist. It's one less platform that they have in this omnichannel space. I think that that's something that we've seen uh, not really a a lot of uh, lift there over the past three years. Um, I I know companies that have had three years worth of problems of some flags getting approved for two days and then getting taken down and and some next ads, you know, that they were told to change had taken down. So it's it's a uh, dissemination of information is, is a big problem, I think. That's something I've never thought about. But but now you say it, it's kind of obvious that some people might go, okay, this is kind of bordering on the sexual where it's obviously not, it's completely medical, but probably people just take it at face value almost and, and, and jump to a conclusion without really thinking it thinking it through. But so where, where do you see the industry going now? Because it does sound like, like there's still a lot of problems. It's not really ready for takeoff. Um, or am I misstating that? Do we think it's really going to start to expand a lot now over the next few years? Or do you think these, these problems will continue to, to I'm almost kind of like push back on it to kind of keep it 
smaller than it should be. But the optimist in me says that this is going to be a, a very bright, FemTech is a bright space. Um, Jesse Draper, who's with the head of Halogen Ventures, wrote a Medium article that said, women's health is an effing charity. You know, this is going to be a multi-trillion dollar industry. And if you're smart, you'll, you know, you'll level up and play in right now. I think one of the biggest factors that I that's actually pretty compelling outside of uh, Jesse Draper and um, in support of uh, women's issues is data and security. So this is something that is not unique to femtech, right? Like there are data and security problems all over tech in general, but in, in the United States, we're missing decades of data because women were excluded from clinical trials or because data was not delineated by sex and gender. And like I had mentioned earlier, it was only six years ago that the US National Institutes of Health started requiring scientists to consider sex as a biological variable in preclinical research. And so there are a lot of apps out there that are taking you know, bio reads of what we're doing, of our periods, of our run steps, of our this and our that, um, without robust dat data privacy standards. So um, there are companies that have been called out in the past couple of years for having weird privacy data standards, if they have any standards at all. It hits home for a lot of tech, for anyone giving away any of their information. But you're finally kind of crossing this chasm of trust, of, of education. It's like, okay, I am going to you know, maybe download this femtech app and use it for family planning or what have you. Oh, now my data has been <laughs> breached and now someone knows everything about, you know, my ovulation period and everything associated with biometrics. So I think it, it it's kind of interesting how it will impact the femtech industry. But because the femtech industry is sort of like the wild, wild west, the law cannot move as expediently as the tech itself. So we have some catching up to do. Which is, I think, interesting because obviously that's something that might prevent the growth. On the other hand, if that data can be collected and collated in a way that does um, keep people's privacy, um, presumably the fact that we haven't had access to that data for so many years and it now is being collected, if there was a way to access that as an industry or a society without risking people's privacy, then, then scientific advances could potentially be made that weren't possible before. Yes, totally agreed. I mean, I think we have to do the same cleaning out of like non-femtech as femtech. Not doing so has a lot of implications on marring trust in this new industry. I'm sure regulation is quite different in the US, the UK or, or other places globally, but do you think reg regulators have a part to play here in helping the industry? Yes, for sure. As much as regulators are trying to regulate non-femtech tech companies, the, the same should be done here. Who's writing these standards? Who's writing these regulations? How much do they know about femtech? Are they applying sort of a template to everything across tech world in general? And, but where do you think we're going next? What, what, do you see kind of particular areas of femtech where you see a lot of growth and innovation likely to happen? Or is it just across the board? I think that we'll start to see um, an, an interest in data and privacy and AI, I think, will uh, play a big part of diagnostics, personal health care, pregnancy and nursing, reproductive health, and beauty in femtech. Of the like the six subsectors that like I just named, approximately six, like three account for seventy four percent of all AI technologies in femtech, and that is namely uh, reproductive health. AI is big there. Healthcare and uh, beauty for uh, femtech is 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 uh, is helpful there. Beauty in femtech would be like scanning your face, 
uh, for like moles or like uh, skin conditions that showed the onset of skin cancer and specific to women, uh, although you could probably use the same technology for a man. However, it was just created for women. There are people who are working on longevity in femtech. So that would be like the third the third um, pillar here, data and science, AI, and then longevity. So longevity uh, focuses on technology, services, and research related to extending a woman's healthy lifespan. I'm fascinated by the, the sector and the way you've outlined kind of the three main areas. Is it a, an easy sector to get a foothold in or is it challenging? And what tips would you give for people who want to kind of move into the sector and do more work in it? Femtech is more approachable to bust into than it was like five years ago. I think there are nonprofits and platforms and um, more VC funding out there and VC firms that have women who don't need the educational spill that is largely given into VCs that are head by men. I think on a macro level, you know, the the lack of diversity in the industry is a problem because it means that most of the money flows to the types of founders VCs understand. This means that fewer great businesses have the opportunity to thrive. $3 trillion is being left on the table. There's $3 trillion of opportunity here. I think more and more founders are starting to understand the landscape. They're packing their patients when they go into these meetings and they're seeking out the folks who who can bypass that learning curve. The only way that we can learn things is by experiencing the learning curve, asking questions, um, being allies and helping push entrepreneurs forward. There's a space for learning. Um, however, it kind of comes at slowing the velocity of some of these founders out here that are trying to connect and move their businesses forward. So while it's still the wild, wild west out there for a lot of entrepreneurs wearing rose-colored glasses, I would say that it's a lot less stringent and scary than it was probably about five, ten years ago when these conversations didn't exist. Could you maybe just give us something to end on? So for, for our listeners, something to, to take away with them and, and, and think about and ponder on for the future of Femtech. While it seems like it's coming out of the gate from nowhere, it's it's been here for a while. You know, there are over 1,500 femtech companies, over 1,000 investors, 14 subsectors, and a funding thus far of over $16 billion. Until we can get to the point where, societally speaking, we embrace the fact that women's health is everyone's health, um, I don't think we're going to quite make the mark for a healthy adoption. But it's super exciting to see all of the work that's being done that hopefully will come to the fore in years to come. So I'm super excited. Thank you, Ali. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens over the next few years. And thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've, I've learned um, absolutely loads today. So um, really good to have your expertise. And thank you. Thank you for joining us. Totally agree. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, where could people find out more about yourself uh, where can they get in touch and things like that? Uh, they can go to my website. It's allililes.com. So A-L-L-E-Y-L-Y-L-E-S.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity in Tech podcast. For more information or to join our global community, visit dintglobal.com. That's D-I-N-T global.com. Global.com.